Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. We are adding to a discussion today that we've that everyone has been having a great deal, a lot of discussions, a lot of conversations, public and private, about the national moment of reckoning we are in now concerning the toxic effects of our country's history of racism and the infrastructure in this country that perpetuates both past and current inequalities. So uh, I think everyone in genetics is cognizant that that plays out in our own field. First of all, historically, genetics is historically a racist science. I mean, I'm not going to go through the history, but I think everyone in the field knows that. Um, And resultingly, there's a lot of distrust that's simplifying. Obviously, there's a thousand reasons why there's a lot of distrust of uh, various minority communities in medicine in general and in genetics in particular. Um, and partly because of the inequality and partly because of the distrust, um, there's been less research by and about certain populations. So that has built the inequality into our databases. So the we literally produce worse medicine for people who probably distrusted us to begin with. And uh, so if they feel like they're being treated with us, we literally can do less for them. So I think that's a, a, a reckoning for us. Um, secondly, diversity and inclusion is not just about databases, it's about us. These two are clearly intertwined because you can't build trust without inclusion. And so it's, it's not, to my mind, a chicken and egg problem. The solution clearly starts with diversifying our own ranks in genetic counseling and clinical genetics in general. Okay, so against that background, and given the moment we are in nationally, which I, um, I think of as productively incendiary, uh, against this productively incendiary background, a debate broke out, re- broke out recently in the generally stayed confines of the NSGC discussion forums. And it started as things do in 2020 with a tweet. So we are here today to talk about the outcry and what provoked it, but most importantly, what provoked it. So joining me for that conversation is Aishwarya Arjunan of Myriad's Women's Health, which is formerly counsel, working currently as a clinical product specialist for the Foresight Carrier Screen. Aishwarya is a faculty member at the Northwestern Genetic Counseling Program and an active member of NSGC, notably the recent chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, and I'm going to ask you some questions about that. And also, Carrie Havarti, um, also previously at Council in Miriam's Women's Health, who now works for Miraculous, a biotech startup in San Francisco, building a laboratory uh, benchtop instrument to automate library prep. For the next for next generation sequencing, so there were so many words and names in there. I'm sure I got some of them wrong, but I sh- let's just move on. Can you tell us about the original tweet and what you were what you were highlighting? Sure. The original uh, tweet actually started from Carrie Haverty, who was sharing some research that had been pre uh, published on a preprint and asking people to basically challenging folks to look at their own practices and examine when and why people may restrict access to info for patients based on race. And one of the examples she used is using genotyping panels versus sequencing for carrier screening. And I responded to that tweet uh, and kind of highlighted 
using myself as an example of why should I get a test with a 55% detection rate when um, if I was offered the CF23 mutation panel versus someone who might be Ashkenazi Jewish or Caucasian who for that same panel would get a 97% detection rate, uh, especially when regardless of ethnicity, we both uh, might be paying into our insurance premiums, deductibles, whatnot. So why is it that I get a lower quality screen based on my ethnicity and race? So Carrie, it actually was something that Carrie started off. Carrie, is, is that uh, universal to carry your screens? Is wh- which part universal? The, the, the... So uh, is there better and worse carrier screens in terms of their ability to work with different populations or their effectiveness for different populations or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, by and large, yeah, um, that is true. There, are, there certainly are some that are um, pretty equal across the board, um, but but there are um, many many examples of different conditions where our quote unquote common um, variants that were that are identified and looked for um, are not are only common for certain populations, um, and they are not common for other populations, and so. If you are in one of the other populations that didn't benefit from, as you well stated in your introduction, the um, kind of long history of, of research focusing on um, on white um, or maybe Jewish um, populations, then you're not going to get the same quality of information if you're looking at just certain variants because uh, they're just innately biased. Yeah, and it's not. It's obviously uh, not just carrier screening, um, right? Anything, right. Absolutely. Anything with a polygenic score is going to have the same issues, a- and uh, variant curation has the same issues. Yes. Um, yes. We don't. We just don't. Don't do as good a job. I don't know. Have, have you experience with that? Yes, uh, yeah. This is the the old adage uh, comes up to me of the story about uh, a man standing underneath a street lamp, looking on the ground everywhere, and somebody comes and says, "What are you doing?" He says, "Oh, I'm looking for my keys." And they're like, "Oh, well, where'd you last see them?" Um, and he said, "Oh, I was two streets over." And they're like, "Well, why are you looking here?" Well, this is where the light is. Um, and <laughs> you know, we we tend to. Um, use the information that we've already got um, to build on. And that doesn't um, evolve very quickly sometimes, especially not without uh, really cognizant, intentional effort uh, toward that end. Um, and this is where we're at now because of, because of that. Uh, I do think that there's more recognition of it and there's more efforts for people to diversify um, the, the data, um, but if we've been excluding people from participating in research, if we've been excluding people from participating in certain types of clinical care, um, then we're just compounding the continuing um, bias, like you talked about in the in the databases, in the in the literature, and so on and so forth. And that's why I think some of the um, and why the tweet I originally tweeted um, that Aishwarya mentioned was. Um, was great because it was such a huge data set and it was a very diverse data set and it very much showed that um, you know if you're focusing just on the on looking under the the street light uh, you're going to miss um, 
really important information and that impacts all of our patients. So um, I think everybody is anxious to find, you know, uh, the, okay, step one, be more conscious of this. Step one, think mm-hmm. about it. Step one, have an awareness of um, when you're maybe considering Northern European to be normal and everything else to be, I don't know, everything else, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so, okay. But I think everyone is just looking like, okay, well, how do we make this better in practice? Is there a way now? Let's look, use carrier screening since you're both familiar with it. Is there a way to improve practice right now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a little bit of a circle with regards to how we can improve practice Mm -hmm. because I think access is important and medical policy coverage also is important. But one of the things with carrier screening, as Carrie said, like it's been around for a while, right? General carrier screening, like for cystic fibrosis, we've been doing it for a really long time. And expanded carrier screening has now been around for more than 10 years. But we still don't see a ton of even like professional society guidelines about expanded carrier screening or medical policy coverage for expanded carrier screening. So much of the pushback that we see is there's not enough information, there's not enough data, or there's limited data. And it's we're never going to have a perfect data set. So at what point do we say, you know what, there is enough information, and there is. We, uh, I mean, we've published a lot, but also other labs have also published data to support why expanded carrier screening is useful for patients and helps identify at-risk couples. But where is that tipping point where we say, you know what, we're never going to have every single checkbox checked, or we might not have every single like data point that we may need, but we have enough to say that this is a better standard to be providing all patients rather than the substandard that we may be providing with ethnicity-based screening or um, just traditional pan-ethnic screening. And the publication, the data set that Carrie mentioned, perfect timing with the taping of this podcast, was just published in Genetics and Medicine on Monday. It just released out, and uh, it was a publication done by a few colleagues where they looked at about uh, 93,000 individuals that underwent expanded carrier screening, and they looked at what their self-reported ethnicity was, and then also analyzed what their genetic ancestry was. And by looking at that, they saw that 10 per, uh, approximately 10% of the individuals in that cohort had a genetic ancestry that was greater than 50% from a lineage that was inconsistent with their self-reported ethnicity. So... When is, we have that data, this is we know like that, right? the theme of yeah. the last 12 months or something. I don't yeah. know. What it does. Like, it's like, okay, let's face up to it. We don't actually know that much about our parentage. Not as much as we thought. Um, that's right. Yeah. And I like right. that myself. I like that. I think that's really super healthy. Um, it also uh, means, you know, we, people often say race is not genetic, right? I mean, there's, there's cultural... Um, aspects of it. And so what somebody self identifies as, yeah, it may not match, not just because they may not know where their grandparents came from, but just because that's, um, that's not entirely a genetic difference. Um, And, um, and that's an important but yeah, because, because of that, um, that's exactly why we should be questioning 
why are we using that to dictate um, how much and what kind and to whom medical care is provided? We've known for a long time, right? Race is a very bad proxy for genes. Correct. Yeah. Um, so we can definitely do better. Um, but what is doing better look like? You're saying offer everybody expanded carrier screenings, and that means, if I understand you correctly, demanding that insurance pay for them? Like, what's the obstacle to everybody getting expanded carrier screening right now? I think guidelines and coverage are big obstacles. I mean, really, the only professional society that really has any sort of updated guideline about expanded carrier screening is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG. They came out with the guideline in 2017, and even their recommendation is kind of not super strict. It just says that uh, traditional ethnicity-based screening, pan-ethnic screening, and expanded carrier screening are acceptable screening strategies. They don't say that they recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, and NSGC, our own professional society, and the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, ACMG, don't really have any updated carrier screening guidelines either, which I think for genetic professional societies, our society should be the ones that are first to come out with any sort of recommendation of sorts. But I think guidelines are a place to start. And I do believe that medical policies and payer coverage follow once guidelines say something or say that it's recommended. Yeah, I've talked to people. I mean, this is it's no longer my issue. But I've talked to people um, that are thinking about pregnancy and uh Expanded carrier screening is still very much an out-of-pocket experience, I think, for most people. I'm not as close to it as you guys are. Would you agree with that? I Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. And it's not outrageous, but it's also enough that it's out of reach, you know, like you, you given the, the rates that with people come back with recessive diseases, you have to assume that you're going to have to test both members of the couple. Yeah. You would be doing partner screening. So, and and as exactly as you said, it's generally out of pocket. So it's maybe only accessible to the people that can afford to pay out of pocket. Um, so, yeah. So that, that I think there's overt and hidden obstacles um, that make good carrier screening less accessible to a lot of people. Um, and in general, I think... That's something we should be addressing. Um, I uh, appreciate what you say about practice guidelines. They make coverage easier, and they affect practice for sure. Yeah, I will also add, though, that um, I think that building um, awareness and education on this with providers, both genetic counselors, obstetricians, uh, et cetera, um, is really important because the other thing that does influence um, coverage is um, – provider behavior and provider requests, those that that is an influence on that. Um, and if they can say, well, we just don't have very many requests for this, so why would we cover it? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a problem. Uh, and, um, and the other issue is, you know, using like some imagined means test for determining when and whether we're going to offer tests where we have very strong clinical evidence of the benefit of offering it. Um, worries me, frankly, um, because having talked with a lot of um, genetic counselors that I've worked with or that um, I encountered or did 
presentations with or what have you in various different uh, formats over the years, um, I know that it's not unusual um, and and probably more common than folks would admit um, to provide testing when it's asked for. Um, I know folks have said that publicly. Um, I've done research on provider behavior that it wasn't published, but um, the findings did show a fair amount of behavior like that. And that just leads to a lot of bias because you're much more likely to look at somebody who looks different than you and think, oh, uh, we can't, they may not be able to afford it. And so I'm not going to offer it um, rather than having a frank discussion about it. So I think that's really interesting because um, I remember back to the days when I was a student at uh, a hospital in the Bronx where, I mean, I was there for three months and we never saw anybody who had anything but Medicaid. One person came in once with an actual insurance card and literally the person at the front desk did not know what to do. They were like a deer in the headlights. So with this population... Uh, it was stunning to me as a student because when you're a student, you think everything's going to be the way they teach you in school. Like, here's the proper way, and it's all going to be done like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a under-resourced hospital in an under-resourced community. And there were a lot of things that would have been offered elsewhere that weren't brought up. And it wasn't actually that they didn't think this group deserved it. It was almost uh, offensive to say, well, what you really need is this test. It was too uncomfortable, is what I'm going to say, to say what you need is this test that costs $700 that isn't covered by Medicaid, which we know you don't have, you know? Right. But it was an assumption but being would, made there. Sure, there's an assumption exactly. being made there. But I, I, I think people are frightened of that uncomfortable. It is. And, and that's, that's true. But too bad. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm bringing it up as like, this is how yeah. these things happen. I, I yeah. mean, it, it, you know, I, I don't know how many people would have done something differently if things were brought up without the assumption that they couldn't pay. I also know that, at least as far as I know, 100% of the laboratories I've ever seen offer free testing for patients that are that under-resourced uh, economically. So, I think that it might take a little more effort, um, might need to find a website that they need to sign into or sign a form or something like that. Um, but, um, you know, just not even bringing it up, just not just avoiding it because of a perception that they um, can't afford it. Um, but, you know, who are we to decide what yeah, patients no, no, I'm a little choose to use their money for? a couple of cases from back then. Where- sure. All of us are, if we're being honest about our practice, any of us who have practiced for any amount of time, and I have been in this field for over 20 years, um, should be haunted. Um, like I, I, one of the things that I was brought up in the, in the Twitter feed that um, I blossomed off of a short tweet uh, was a case that really impacted me in graduate school. It was a couple, the mother is black and the father is um, Hispanic American. And uh, they had a son with Tay-Sachs disease. And it had taken a ridiculous time for him to get diagnosed. Um, And uh, this poor couple, I remember sitting down with them and I was in graduate school at the time. um, And uh, I sat down with them and she said, if one more person in this department asked me if my husband and I are related to each other, I'm going to scream. <laughs> um, and I thought, yeah, because 
people just could not get over the fact that a non-Jewish baby had Tay-Sachs disease. It wasn't a baby who was preschooler by the time they figured it out. But um, yeah, yeah and, and that just sat with me. And you know what the fact is? That same couple now probably would have the exact same experience 20 years later. Now, at that time, we did not have sequencing available widely uh, or at all. Um, you know, we were dealing with the inadequacies of enzyme analysis and so on and so forth, but we do not have those excuses anymore. Um, and to for somebody to say, well, I offer it if somebody asks for it or, or essentially I'm offering it if I think they can afford it is really um, problematic. Right. Right. Yeah. And, so and that's really the, sorry, I was just going to say, I think that's really where we have to check ourselves and check our biases, not just as genetic counselors, but I think, healthcare providers in general is making those assumptions about the patients that we're going to see and what they want to do and what they may do with the information. Um, I believe there was yeah. actually another thread that people are sharing on Twitter right now from Joseph at all about what the information provided to counselors is versus what patients really want to know. So with yeah. our training, we're trained like to teach patients about genetics, genes, and mutations, and how we're doing this risk assessment. But like really at the end of the day, is that what the patient truly is there for? Is that what they're there to understand? Are we following this kind of rubric that we think is what they need to get versus what the patient is actually there for? Yeah, and, I, I think I think there's yeah. a couple of uh, things that feed into that. One is we're all in this field because we find this stuff cool. So we think, yeah. oh, <laughs> But I, as my children tell me all the time, like, not everyone else is so interested, you know, which is very good advice from Laura's children. And also, um, it's our comfort zone, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's that's safe. an easy it's conversation. Safe. It's a fact. It's a fact, right? Giving out mm -hmm. facts. And it's like, oh, it's like you look in your pocket and you're like, I have these four facts in my pocket. I can put mm -hmm. them on the table, you know? Um, mm -hmm. or I guess I should say cards, hands, uh, cards in your hand. Cause it's more like that. And you lay them down. You're like, look at that. Mm -hmm. It's very comfortable. And the other part is less comfortable. I know we've talked about that before. So I, I want to ask you something. Um, I, you have just spent, uh, a considerable amount of time looking at diversity in the genetic counseling profession, right? Mm -hmm. So how much do you see that as a, something that will improve the issues in practice we're talking about here? I would like to hope that it will improve a lot moving forward. Um, but I think there are a lot of folks that have also seen us try to address diversity in the past and not done a great job mm -hmm. of it. So people are still hesitating. So but tell, tell us about that. What do you mean? So I've, I've been in the profession for seven years. So for me, I feel like this was really the first time where we truly took an effort in the past seven years, at least that I, I can recall and remember, that we're addressing diversity in such a wide area or wide scope. But there were members of our task force that have been part of the profession for a longer time period and have said, well, we tried to do this and it never really went anywhere. Or people, when we created the task force, also made comments and saying like, well, NSGC has done this in the past and it nothing really happened or we Can really I, didn't For anyone anything. who is not a genetic counselor, let me just say it's a lot of white women, right? This is yeah. not a this is not a diverse field. 
Um, nope. A lot of women, period, a lot of white women, uh, a good number of Asian women, uh, really <gasps> distinct underrepresentation of um, African Americans, of uh, Hispanics. So there's, there's a lot of, of communities that are underrepresented in our ranks, and it's something we're very aware of. I don't know. It's not that easy to fix. So tell me what you what you found now. I, I know there was just an announcement that they're doing. Um, you tell me what is yes. it we're doing. Yeah. So we, uh, one of the recommendations that came from the task force is that we were very cognizant and very thankful to the task force members for bringing this up. And we've been talking about this in that underrepresented individuals can't take the onus on themselves. The onus should not be on underrepresented individuals to figure out what all the problems are and figure out what all the solutions are. We can speak for ourselves and our experience, but we cannot speak for everyone that might be an underrepresented individual within the profession. And what a few of the task force members really advocated for was actually having someone, um, a professional uh, consulting group come in and provide a diversity, equity, and inclusion assessment of our organization. So, that is really, and that was the first step. Um, the organization that or we, the field? So starting with NSGC as an organization, but also talking to people and looking at the field in general. And this is where I hope that we can actually do more to hold each other accountable um, in that we have multiple organizations within genetics, right? And we have our National Society of Genetic Counselors. We have our American Board of Genetic Counseling, our the accreditation council, the program director group, there's all of these different organizations. And I, I, I'm not super familiar with how they all interact, but I do know there are some conversations that happen on some routine basis, but it doesn't seem like there's a formal process where all of these organizations are working together uh, collaboratively to address diversity, equity, and inclusion in the profession. Um, I don't think NSGC can be the sole group that addresses everything that goes on within the profession because some things might be um, not within uh, NSGC's power to change. But I do think it is, um, it should, NSGC should try to make efforts and hold other organizations and our colleagues accountable in making these changes too. So the consulting group is focusing on NSGC and um, how the organization can improve their diversity, equity, and inclusion um, tactics. So whether it be our annual conference, whether it be our committees, our guidelines and policies, anything and everything that touches NSGC, we're asking for the consultant to evaluate and provide feedback on. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think there should be a larger call and also working with our sister organizations like ACMG and ASHG as well, yeah. um, because there is not just diversity issues within genetic counseling, but also our medical geneticist and I'm sure our genetic researchers as well. I'm not 100% sure on what the uh, <laughs> diversity breakdown is within but those you could, organizations. You could make an educated guess. But I can, you I can could guess. make an yeah. educated guess. Yeah. And I think so. I had some students who were looked at this years ago, and one of the facts that jumped out at me that I thought was very interesting was that uh, very often some of the individuals, some of the, in, in communities that we were looking to try and interest in genetic counseling, uh, tended to make up their minds about what they were going to study earlier. 
than other groups. And when you think about it, it turns out that one of those unquestioned, doesn't really jump out at you areas of entitlement is not knowing what you're going to do when you grow up. So like, I Mm -hmm. went to college and studied English literature, because that was what college was about for me. But I didn't walk into college thinking like, what's my job going to be coming out? Whereas depending on what my family was doing and what my background was and something, a lot of other people that are like, I, I got to go to college for, for some goals. Like I need some promises at the end of this very expensive experience that, um, so they make, de- cer- certain people might tend to make decisions earlier. So we have to, we have to reach them earlier, you know, if we want to mm-hmm. interest them in genetic counseling. I thought that was very interesting and maybe somewhat practical, but in addition to getting people in, what's very disturbing to me is what I'm hearing people talk about is also that what you didn't get is that making sure that people who either take a look at our profession or are in our profession feel comfortable and want to mm-hmm. be here uh, mm-hmm. and then communicate that to others. So that seems to me our greatest recruiting tool, you know, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. I'm hearing not such great things. Do, do either right. of you have uh, experience with that? I can say from, um, I've been on the Northwestern admissions committee for the last six years, and I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard from people that come in to interview that I'm the first person of color that they've met as a genetic counselor. And when you're talking about certain individuals or certain groups that might have to make decisions earlier about what might, what a potential career might be for them or look like for them, and they go and research a career and see you know what, this might not be where I fit in because there's no one that looks like me that is in this profession. So maybe it's not something that I need, I should explore, continue exploring. Um, So yeah, I do. I I think there, that's been my personal experience. And even thinking about it now, I think the first maybe person of color that I met within the genetic counseling profession was after I graduated and started working. Um, so, and, and which I think is kind of crazy now thinking about thinking back at it, I, I feel like I was just resigned to it and maybe just used to not being in like that, that diverse field before. True at, at Sarah Lawrence. That's all I'm just, I don't usually plug my, my school, but I'm going to say that will absolutely not have been true. At Sora Lawrenson. But it doesn't, it doesn't happen by accident. I'll tell you that. It doesn't happen by accident. It, it, there's a lot of effort that, that goes into that. You know what? I um, sort of keep you an eye on the time. I want to move the conversation over a little bit because your tweet, Carrie, and your response and the what follows were a discussion about practice and about testing. And, uh, uh, and then there was um, a post up on the discussion forums uh, at an SGC saying like, you know, wow, this got really emotional with hurt feelings. And I feel like I missed something. I guess it's in the eye of the beholder, but my, I felt the same way. I thought it was actually a really productive and interesting and good conversation as far as Twitter goes. Um, And, you know, people shared differing viewpoints and perspectives and showed evolution of thought. And, um, you know, yeah, I thought it was really um, appropriate uh, for that type of platform. I'm not going to mention anything real specifically, and certainly no names, because sure. what happens on those discussion forums is supposed to is is private. It, it clearly is an eye of the beholder. This is not private. Yeah. 
this is for everybody and so on. So we're not going to say. But I did think it was there were a lot of things brought up then that were uh, one you've already mentioned, which is not making it the burden of the, the people of color Correct. in this organization to do all the work of making us less unwelcoming or racist. The other thing that came up was this idea of tone policing, which was interesting to me, and maybe one of you would like to take it from there. Yeah, I do think sometimes it may be where folks expressing emotion um, may be seen differently depending on how that individual may like visually identify like depending on what the race is and some people feel like they might have to temper their emotions because they don't want to be seen as someone that is emotional or angry or aggressive or whatever it may be and the other thing is you can't tell emotion that well on twitter right it's 140 Mm -hmm. characters um so i think it's really you can't ask people to say like you shouldn't say things like that or you we need to play nice or whatever it might be i'm paraphrasing not using exact languages from the discussions but i do think it's it's not fair to ask people to control their emotions when they want to express these emotions and we have the right to express emotions yeah um you know i think it's interesting uh, i thought this a long time but not about this particular issue but i think that like, look, I, I've said this before, genetic counselors, genuinely, they think they're nice. And the reason they generally think they're, generally think they're nice is they generally are a very nice group of people. Never been around such a nice group of people. But it's actually a strange impediment because as a group, I find genetic counselors are so convinced that yeah. they're the good guys. And they mostly are. But when they yes. are and I'm not saying an individual, but when a practice is, is, is conflicted, for instance, or uh, imperfect, Mm -hmm. or in some way, uh, not Mm -hmm. uh, working well for another group. Sometimes the biggest obstacles can be GC's just sort of starting point that this is how we do things. And we practice ethically. That's right. Yeah. It becomes a circular logic and it makes it hard to really dig in and examine things and dismantle things, Um, especially when we are in the process of that, have to acknowledge that the majority of us, myself included, are white women who are dominating this profession and benefiting from that um, existing structure. Um, And so undoing it means undoing our, you know, some of recognizing and undoing, hopefully, some of our own privilege um, in that process, which is incredibly difficult um, and really painful. And it is, um, you know, sometimes those conversations need to be blunt and sometimes um, they need to be um, challenged and um, they always need to be heard. Um, and so I think that's where the the reaction to the comment about anything that is you know, sort of along the lines of tone policing or something that it's like shutting down that conversation right at the time when, when we primarily, um, we as a profession, but especially we 95% or whatever white women in this profession um, need to be doing the exact opposite of that and, and really um, 
really getting into it um, and really being honest with ourselves and each other and holding our holding. We need to hold ourselves accountable, but we need to hold each other accountable too. And it cannot be on the backs of our colleagues who have borne and continue to bear burden every day, just being a person of color generally, but in this field, especially um, to do that work. Uh, in addition to some of this, which is hard and complicated and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, no doubt. Uh, right now it's like, okay, how does it bear fruit? There's also this whole element that you started off saying that can bear fruit. Start by looking at the practice, right? Like yep. Start mm -hmm. by finding practical ways yep. to make uh, testing and diagnosis and variant calling and so on equally effective and responsive for everyone who walks in the door. I, I for one, I think if I were in, I, I'm, I don't do um, that counseling, but I think if I did, I'd be like, oh, something I can actually do, like something you can sink your teeth right. into and do right now. Um, yeah, there's actually a really good quote that's been, I think, making the waves through like Instagram and Twitter, where um, I, I believe the quote is attributed to Iris M. Kalpin. And what it says is the more tightly we cling to our identity as a good person, the more skilled we become at rationalizing our behavior and the less available we are to examine the ways that we cause harm. And, and that's the thing I really think that we do have to check. We mean, we might mean, um, we might have good intentions, but it may not always translate the way that we intended to. And just because we intended to do something good doesn't absolve us for the harm that we might end up causing. And I think we all have some uh, something to contribute to this discussion. Even though I might con I might be considered an underrepresented person in the field, um, I still have a role in both dismantling, but I have also perpetuated the systemic racism. Like I still have these privileges myself. Like, And I need to check what those privileges are and see how they contributed to potentially oppressing other individuals that might not have had the same opportunities and privileges. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that all of us have to be open to having these conversations and they're not oh. going to be comfortable. And mm -hmm. that's the thing is we need to get comfortable with having these uncomfortable conversations and really looking at how our practices and behaviors are affecting not only our patients, but also our colleagues and students. I feel like so much of our training was focused on patient care, but maybe not necessarily how we treat our colleagues and our coworkers and potentially our students coming down the line. And, and maybe that's something that we need to be looking at more holistically as well. And what are the changes that we can make to address this? And how do we hold ourselves and our colleagues accountable? Like they're really, we, we don't really have a process of holding one another accountable right now, right? So, and that's what we're seeing with all of these stories that people are sharing and their experiences that they may, may have had during training. They never felt that they could be open and share that feedback without thinking that there might be some sort of negative, um, negative like retribution or retaliation for sharing that feedback. And those are the things that we really need to kind of take this time and use this momentum to see like what can we do to make this meaningful change because we can do something um mm -hmm. 
but we need to work together and really make it so that it's something that's long-term and sustainable and not just something that we say we're going to do because it's the moment to declare your commitment to change and like make these promises, but not really follow through with them. I think that is uh, lovely and so well said. And um, I'm grateful for you because I feel like that's really the last word for us here today. And I'm um, happy to have it end on that, uh, that note. Um, so I'd like to thank both of you for coming for this conversation. Thank you. I feel very grateful for you being here today. And I hope that both of you have a good, happy, safe rest of your summer. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us. Please go to the website, BeagleLanda.com, follow me on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast, all that good stuff. Take care, everybody. <laughs>